Good morning again. This morning I want us to uh, think about ourselves and examine how we respond in moments of crisis or struggle. And what I'm particularly interested in is what is our first response in a moment of crisis? When something happens, uh, our first reaction to some bad news, whether maybe it's we get some bad news at work, something we were working on, or maybe there's an emergency with our family, or just a really unexpected conversation, a question you weren't expecting from a friend. What is our very first reaction in the split second after that happens? I think some of that is probably based on our personality. Maybe a personality that you react quickly to things, so maybe you get Maybe you get angry or frustrated or you just plow ahead with whatever the first thought is that, that comes into your mind. Maybe you're someone who's a bit more emotional and so you react immediately with that, whether it's with, with tears or withdrawing some other type of emotion. Maybe you've been gifted with a personality that no matter what hits you, you're able to stay focused and determined and you just continue ahead on what you were doing. I'll confess, I'm the kind of person that if something unexpected comes up, my first reaction is to take a step back. I, I want to pause. I want to think about it. I want to process what I've just heard. So I apologize if you ask a question and my response is, let me think about it, because it's true. I, I need to think about it <laughs> before responding. But one response I know that I neglect in that first moment, that first split second of crisis, I often don't think about prayer in that moment. I don't think about calling out to the God who cares for me in that moment. I'm thinking about what am I going to do right now? But the truth is that every day is a time of desperate need for us. Yes, that's because we live in a confusing world with very challenging choices, but we also have the daily trials that have been and are common to mankind. And so we should ask ourselves, when a decision comes, when a moment of crisis comes, we only have one second to respond, what should we do? Well, I think we should train ourselves to pray. Last week, we talked about well, how we can pray if we have more extended time to pray. We looked at a model prayer from this man, Nehemiah, about how we can pray and address God when we're focused on a particular issue. But sometimes the moment and the need is a bit more desperate than that. Sometimes we don't have time to go through, we talked about the acronym ACTS. We don't have time to go through ACTS. We just have a moment to talk to the Lord. But the good news is we can talk to Him, no matter how short that moment is. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about desperate prayer to a sovereign God. And if we're desperately praying to a sovereign God, that also means we can diligently plan while depending on the good hand of God. We can give desperate prayer to a sovereign God and diligently plan while we depend on the good hand of God. We'll talk about that and then we'll wrap up by talking about the most important desperate prayer that we could ever pray, a diligent plan that each of us needs to make. But before we do that, let's read our passage and hear from God. So if you're not there, I'd encourage you to turn your Bible to the book of Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 today, Nehemiah 2. You can follow along in a Bible you have, or you can look up on the screen. And once you are there, I'd ask you to please stand to <clears throat> honor the reading of God's Word and follow along as I read our passage for today. All right, verse 1 says, In the month of Nisan, 
in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I, this is Nehemiah, took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Verse 4, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Verse 6, and the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Let's pray. Lord, once again this week, we come to humbly ask you to teach us to pray. Today, God, would you teach us to lift up desperate, brief prayers to you in our moment of need. May we not rely on ourselves, but rely on you, the sovereign God in control of all things. And God, teach us not to be satisfied with that, but as we pray desperate prayers, to diligently plan, depending on you, and that you extend your good hand of grace and support to us. May we rely upon it. God, thank you that we can call out to you. We can plan depending on you because of your great care for us, especially as it was shown in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. May he be the one we glorify today and every day. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to remember where we are in Scripture to really understand what's happening in this story. We've been looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's talking about God's people are back in the promised land, and they're wondering what's next for them. How are they going to serve God now? And we've been kind of relating it to our experience, coming back to worship God. They didn't come back all at once. It was a gradual return. And what does it look like to follow God now? We're focused now, Nehemiah, on the third, the last group of people to return sometime around the year 445 B.C. Last week, we met this man, Nehemiah. He's working for the Persian king, the king who's ruling over this entire area. He's working for the king, but some of his friends visit from Judah and Jerusalem. And this is what they tell him in verse 3 that they say, chapter 1, they say, the remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. 
The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah's response to that is in the very next verse. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. That was his response. He wept, he mourned, he fasted, prayed. And what did he pray? Well, we looked at his prayer. The rest of it is in chapter one. We talked about how in some ways he was kind of using that model prayer of Acts, which was an acronym that's a modern acronym, but it summarizes what Nehemiah was saying. He adores God for who he is. He confesses his sin to God. He expresses thanksgiving for God's promises, urges God to remember what he has promised to his people. And then he does supplication. He asks God for what he needs. And his ultimate request we find in verse 11 of chapter 1. He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Because, Nehemiah says, he was a cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah had been placed in a key position. He had access to the king. The king trusted him as an advisor. And so Nehemiah asked God, God, I want you to change the heart of the most powerful man in the world. Change his heart so that I can have success and rebuild the city of your people. Nehemiah has prayed, and now he's ready to act. But as we read our passage today, he's not quite done praying because he has one last desperate prayer. That's what we'll focus on this first half, his desperate prayer to a sovereign God. Let's see how this desperate prayer fits in. Our passage we started reading in chapter 2, verse 1, tells us that is the month of Nisan, which is about four months after chapter 1, probably around April 445 BC. And this is finally when something happens. But think about that. That means that Nehemiah was weeping and mourning, fasting and praying in his spare time, every moment he had for four months until this moment came. He didn't go right away to the king and say, king, this is what I need. He spent four months in prayer about it. And sometimes we might have a burden on our heart that we may be praying to God, lifting up before him, but we may have to wait to know exactly what God would have us do in that situation. We may need to wait until he grants us the wisdom to understand, yes, this is the course to go. He may use that time to build in us patience and waiting on him. It's almost frustrating that God doesn't seem to do things according to my timetable and my schedule. It'd be really nice if he did, but he doesn't because he knows better than I do. And if we take the time to look at it in our life, sometimes it's not in the moment. It's normally after it that we see this. I had to wait on God to get a relationship that, that I wanted. I had to wait on God longer than I wanted to find a place to live. But God is faithful in those things, not the, necessarily according to my schedule, but according to his. He's been very faithful to teach me that, as the psalm says, to wait for the Lord. Be strong, let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And that's what Nehemiah had to do here. 
And he was very careful in this. He says in the end of verse 1 that he had not been sad in the king's presence. He's been burdened about this, but he has not been sad yet. He did his job without complaint for four months. But on this particular day, his emotions come through in a way that the king notices, and God can work his will for his purpose. And so verse 2 tells us the king notices something. Nehemiah has sadness sorrow of the heart. The king can tell, Nehemiah, you are troubled. It's not that Nehemiah was acting, but he's letting his emotions, his feelings show that he had been holding in check. And the king could tell. God's word tells us that a glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. And the king can obviously see, Nehemiah, you are upset. And then I love the honesty of Nehemiah here describing his experience. At the end of verse 2, he says, then I was very much afraid. This is a very honest, very human and natural response. Because in, in that day, servants were not supposed to let their emotions get in the way of their service. You were always supposed to be happy in the king's sight because the king wanted happy people around him. And so Nehemiah is afraid that the fact that he's sad may mean they view him as being disloyal. What he's about to ask the king for is something the king just said he didn't want to do. So he's acting sad and he's going to ask for something that's uncomfortable. It's no wonder that he's afraid. In his day, servants were not allowed to have a bad day. He couldn't say, hey, king, I'm taking a personal day today. No, he always had to be happy, but today he wasn't. He's going to ask the king for the very opposite of what the king ordered. We read the king's letter a few weeks ago in Ezra chapter 4. The king said, therefore, make a decree that these men, those who are rebuilding Jerusalem, be made to cease, that this city not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. He said, I do not want this city to be built. Nehemiah knows this is what he's asking. He's, he's made too offensive, or he's going to. He's been sad, and he's going to ask for something the king doesn't want. I'm sure in that moment when he says, I was very much afraid if we were writing this in modern times, we might say, my life flashed before my eyes. And then in verse 3, Nehemiah responds, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, its gates have been destroyed by fire? He says, may the king live forever. I'm not sad about you, king, but the city where my ancestors are buried, it lies in ruins, it's in waste, it's desolate. The gates are destroyed. He shows his loyalty to the king. He's saying, long live the king, but he also explains why he's sad. He speaks in a way that he knows will reach the king. He affirms his loyalty, but he doesn't hide his heart. He may be being a little careful here. He doesn't mention the city, that he wants to rebuild, probably because the king ordered the work to stop. He's trying to get sympathy, be persuasive. But the king sees through this a little bit. And so in verse 4, the king can see Nehemiah is building up to something. And so the king said to me, what are you requesting? What do you want, Nehemiah? And then this key phrase here, the middle end of verse 4, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah said a quick prayer, before he replies in verse 5, he wants to be sent to Judah so he can repair Jerusalem. And it's that moment at the end of verse 4, that brief little desperate prayer 
that I want us to focus on today. We don't know exactly what Nehemiah said in that moment to God. He had been praying for four months. What, what more could he possibly say to God then? But he knew he could never have spent enough time in prayer. And this is a quick, brief prayer of desperation. Multiple people I've heard before have described it as a flare prayer to God, saying, God, I need help right now. He's praying, shouting out to the God of heaven, the one who is really in control of the situation. The prayer was probably so brief that the king didn't even notice, but it was enough for Nehemiah to say, God, I am depending on you. Back in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, he also calls out to the God of heaven. This was that phrase that showed up in a song earlier today. He said, O Lord, God of heaven, the one who is really in control, the great and awesome God. That is the one that Nehemiah is addressing with this prayer. I think he's showing amazing presence of mind to, in this moment of crisis when everything he's been praying for is coming to a head, to at least pause for a moment and turn to God. One pastor, James Hamilton, put it this way, in the midst of an intense situation, Nehemiah's thoughts go to God. And this shows us how reliant on God Nehemiah really is. He instinctively calls on God. For Nehemiah, his first response in this moment of crisis wasn't, oh boy, what do I say now? I would have said, king, give me a second. Okay, no, his first response is, God, I need you right now. This is the moment of truth. He's probably in that moment like, God, help me know what to say, asking for the right words. Because Nehemiah has a close enough relationship with God that he knows God promises his people wisdom to say what is needed when they represent him. Jesus talks about this in the book of Mark. Jesus says, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean we should never prepare or have a response ready for people, but it means in the moment we can depend on God to give us wisdom. This is a short moment in Nehemiah's life, but it must have been really meaningful to him. If I was writing this story, I would say the king asked this, and then I said, I want to go to the promised land. Even if I had said that prayer, I'd been like, That's, that was a tiny detail. They already knew I was praying for four months. I don't need to put that there. But it must have been so meaningful for Nehemiah that in that moment of crisis, he could say, God, I need you. And then he responded. Even if it was just one second, he must have remembered it for his whole life. So what do we learn from that? Well, last week we talked about how it's good to have set times of long prayer with God, that we can follow those steps that ACTS, have adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. That's absolutely true. We should discipline ourselves to do that. But we can also call out to God in moments of desperation, in moments of need, when we need comfort, when we need to know that God is with us, we can call out to him. I think this may be what the New Testament is talking about. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is a good thing to do sometimes. No, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. No matter what we're facing, we always have at least a second to pray to 
to God. Even if it's nothing else, just help me, God, and whatever we need to respond. And we can do this wherever we are and whatever situation we're in. Maybe where you're at work, the boss calls you in for a conversation, and you have no idea what the boss is going to say, but in the two seconds it takes you to walk in his or her office, you can say, God, give me wisdom to know how to respond. Maybe you're at school and you know that you've prepared for this test or whatever you're doing and the teacher's asking the question and you're trying to say, God, help me to remember what I've learned. You have a second for that. Maybe you're at home and you're dealing with a particularly challenging family member. I'll let you fill in the blanks about whoever that is in your situation. And maybe they've just said or done that one thing that pushes you over the edge a little bit. You'd say, God, help me to respond with love and grace. Maybe you're dealing with physical or emotional pain. And in that moment when you feel that pain, you'd say, God, I need your help. I need your comfort right now. I, I need your help to persevere through this pain. The truth is, brothers and sisters, you do not need to be alone in your own little room to pray. That, that's, that's a wonderful place to be, to have set time of prayer with God, absolutely. But in the moment of need, you do not need to be alone to pray. You do not need to be in the church building to pray about what is burdening your heart. God wants to hear our emotions, what we're feeling and calling out to him. Pastor Charles Spurgeon said, the prayers that come leaping out of the soul, the gust of strong emotion, fervent desire, lively faith, these are the truly spiritual prayers. And no prayers but spiritual prayers will God accept. You can have the most beautiful prayer in the world memorized, but let me tell you, that means less to God than you expressing your emotions. God, this is what I feel, and I need your help. So yes, we call out to God in our moments of desperation, but really we should be balancing these things together, both long times of prayer and short. Honestly, every action we take during the day could be bathed in prayer. From things as simple as getting dressed to getting in the car, these things we can devote to the Lord in prayer. Now, what I don't mean is saying, looking at your closet in the morning, say, God, you want me to wear the blue outfit or the red outfit today? That, that, that's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about seeing moments of God's work and either praising him for it or praying that you use it well. The one that came to my mind is, uh, say you're someone who commutes to work, and maybe on a particular day you hit all the green lights just right, and you get there far earlier than you'd expect. I'll tell you what my first reaction is, is to go, oh, lucky day. This is going to be a good day for me. But what if instead in that moment you say, God, you've given me some extra time today. I pray that you help me to use that time well. I believe, and I think Nehemiah demonstrates to us that it is worth it to discipline ourselves, to train ourselves for brief, silent prayers, dedicating each and every moment as far as we are able to God. And if we teach ourselves to do that, to each moment say, God, this moment is for you. Help me to use it for you. If we train ourselves to do that at many moments throughout the day, then when the moment of crisis comes, like it does for Nehemiah here, when all the pressure comes together, then we'll respond instinctively with prayer. If we haven't trained ourselves to do that, then when the moment of crisis comes, we'll fall back on what we know, on, oh, I have to figure this problem out, or go ahead with whatever emotion we're feeling. But because Nehemiah was so reliant on God, because he communicated with him so frequently, when that moment came, his one second response was, God, I'm praying to you. 
before responding. If we train ourselves, then we'll respond like Nehemiah did. Again, Pastor Spurgeon says, God does not hear us because of the length of our prayer, but because of the sincerity of it. Do we communicate with God frequently? Do we communicate with him this way, with this type of sincerity? Why don't we try it this week? Why don't when you feel an emotion that you can recognize as an emotion, if something particularly makes you happy, then praise God for it. If something makes you frustrated, then pray for God's strength and patience in that moment. When the moments of emotion come, turn that emotion to prayer. If you would like a space for a dedicated prayer time, well, hey, we're doing that this week on Thursday. You can make it here to the church at 6.30. We'll have a time of dedicated, desperate prayer for our nation. So I encourage you to be a part of that. We can balance those types of prayers together. Why can we pray in that way? Why is it important? Because we're offering this desperate prayer, not to someone who doesn't care, but to a sovereign God. We're offering desperate prayers to a sovereign God. And when I say sovereign, I mean that God is good and he is in control of what happens. He is sovereign. He is in control. Look at verse 6 of our passage. Nehemiah makes his request, and the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. This tells us what happened when Nehemiah gave his request, and I, I love He's building up all the tension here. He describes the whole scene for us before telling us what happened. Well, the king was on his throne. The queen was next to him. I, I feel like if he wanted to build up more, he could talk about the table was spread out. There were 30 other people in the room. They looked at each other. I could, you could hear a pin drop. It's building the dramatic tension. And then, surprisingly, or perhaps not, the king agrees. And I even love the drama of how it relates it. It's not, and the king said yes to my request. No, the, the, king says, the king says, how long will you be gone and when will you return? There's not a yes there, but the yes is implied behind that response. So why did the king let Nehemiah do this? Uh, was it because he trusted him? Was it because he wanted allies in that region of the world? All those are probably true, but... I think a larger thing is because God was the one who was in control. The book of Proverbs tells us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. God can make rulers of, of nations and any figures of authority, he can make them do whatever he wills and whatever he wants. He says, Further back in the Old Testament, he talks about Pharaoh, another person who at that time was the most powerful king in the world. And the Lord says to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants that I might show my signs, my power among them. God did it before in Exodus. He's doing it now with the Persian king. He uses rulers of all nations, all those in authority, for his purposes. They do not stop God from doing what he wants. He uses them to do what he wants. And it also shows us that only God can really change hearts. That's true of kings, and that's true of everyone in our life. Most of us in this room, we're not going to talk to someone who's king or even uh, president or anything like that. We're probably not going to have regular conversations with people like that. But there are people in authority we'll talk to or other people in our life 
And we need to remind ourselves we don't have the power to change their hearts. We have the responsibility to serve them, to show love to them, but we have to let God do the work of changing other people's hearts. Now, yes, some uh, of us are, are parents, and parents are responsible to discipline their children, but even in that, it's showing children the right, right way. God has to be the one to change hearts. In our text, the king he has a close relationship with Nehemiah. He values his service. He wants him back, so Nehemiah gives him a definite time for his return. He says, this is the time I'll be gone. In the end, we'll read later in the book, Nehemiah ends up being appointed governor of Judah. He serves there for about 12 years, and then, honoring his word, he goes back to the king before he returns once again to Jerusalem at the very end of the book of Nehemiah. All of this is showing us that God is sovereign and in control. This is the why behind our desperate prayers. In our moments of desperation, we can call out to God, why? Because he is in control. We can trust him. We can pray to him. He is bigger than any concern that we have. Some of us, maybe around my age, we grew up with a uh, particular Christian kids video that told us that God is bigger than the boogeyman. And yes, that's absolutely true. But sometimes when we become adults, we forget that he's bigger than the problems we have as adults too. We should call on him in our moments of desperation. But just because we're calling out to God in prayer, that doesn't mean that we then sit back and do nothing and just wait for God to take care of everything that's in front of us. Because this passage also shows us that we should be planning. Nehemiah shows diligent planning in this passage. He has desperate prayer to God, but he also diligently plans how he's going to serve him, all while depending on the good hand of God. The king has given him permission, so Nehemiah asks for specific letters to the people who are in charge, the region he is going to. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, for the wall of the city, for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So Nehemiah asked for some letters, letters to those who are in charge of the provinces, the territories around Jerusalem, the province beyond the river or trans-Euphrates. He needs letters so he can pass through those people's lands and get to Jerusalem. He also asked for a letter to a man named Asaph, the keeper, the manager of the king's forest or the royal park. He needs timber for the fortress at the temple for the citadel, for the wall of the city, and for his own house. Here we see Nehemiah had a plan. He knew how he was going to respond and how he could serve God when the king said yes. You see that? This is the same conversation. This isn't Nehemiah went home and said, oh, thanks, king, I'll get the details to you in a follow-up email. No, he was ready in that moment with, here's the things I need to make this happen. He had already trusted that God would make the king say yes to his request. He already had a plan for how he would serve God. He was ready. 
to respond when the opportunity came. One scholar put it that Nehemiah modeled good leadership. He prayed, planned, and acted in dependence on God, submission to his guidance. Nehemiah had done his homework. He had done his research. He knew how long the trip was going to be. He knew how long he'd be gone. He knew what he needed to rebuild. He knew what permission he needed to get there. He planned and he relied on God. He put the two together. The book of Proverbs does this as well. It says, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. So yes, we, we plan ahead, but ultimately knowing that God is the one who is in control. I'm just really impressed at how Nehemiah was prepared for God to answer his prayers. He'd been praying, God, I want you to change the heart of the king. And then he still thought through, when God does that, here's the things I'll need to fall into place. And I've got to confess, I don't do that always when I pray. I don't, I don't pray expecting, yes, God's going to answer that prayer and planning for God to answer that. And you can think about that on any scale you want. Sometimes we pray for uh, government leaders to think differently about particular issues, but are we planning with what if God miraculously changes someone's heart in the next day? Are we prepared to fill in any gaps to, to help serve and opportunities that may open up? Sometimes we may be praying for someone to come to know the Lord. We've been emphasizing this year this who's your one, praying for one person. But have we planned for when that person comes and asks me about how to know the Lord? Do I, do I know what I'm going to say right then? Have I planned for God to answer that prayer? Or what about for our church? We, we pray. We want to see people come to know the Lord here. We want to see the community be a part, greater part of what's happening here in our church. But have we planned? Are we ready for changes, adjustments, things we'll have to do when God answers that prayer. Yes, we pray, but we also plan. Nehemiah knew that he could not accomplish the task that was in front of him without these letters from the king. He needed to pass through hostile territory. He needed to get resources. In many ways, this is a very bold request because these are the people who convinced the king to make them stop working on the city in the first place. They're the ones who wrote to the king and said, you need to make these people stop. And the king said, okay. And so now Nehemiah says, hey, give me letters for those people so they know that they have to help me now. But these were things he needed to make his journey a success. He had thought through potential obstacles to serving God, and he was ready when the opportunity came. Brothers and sisters, God calls us to a similar task today. He doesn't call us to, to build a wall of Jerusalem. That's not our responsibility, but he does call us to serve him and to grow closer to him. And if we're going to do those things, we need to plan for them. If we're planning to serve God, we need to think, how are we doing that? How are we accomplishing that purpose? What am I planning to do to serve God, to build his church, support this church, to build his kingdom around the world? And then we need to plan to grow spiritually, what, what steps are we taking to grow closer to God? It's a very old cliche, and it's not in the Bible, but it's true. Ben Franklin said, if you fail to plan, you are planning to fail. On a more spiritual perspective, on the other hand, Charles or Chuck Swindoll said that wise planning on my part gives the Lord more opportunity to accomplish his ends, never less. The planning we have is, is not wasted. If it doesn't work out in this situation, then maybe one in a future. Or at the very least, it's teaching us to rely on God. 
if we're going to be serving God, if we're going to be growing in our faith, we need to take the time to make a plan. So ask ourselves, am I serving God? Am I involved in the work that he's doing in my local church? And if not, make a plan to fix that. Maybe you've heard there's needs in the the children ministry. So my plan is after the service or next week, I'm going to talk to Mr. Don about how I can serve down there. Or maybe I don't feel my gifts are there, but you know what? I'm going to have a conversation with Pastor John today, next week, about how I can serve God and be a part of his church here. Or talk about our spiritual growth. Make a commitment, make a plan. Say, I'm not going to let life just happen to me. I'm not going to let another year slip by. I'm going to commit to growing closer to God in whatever little step that needs to be for you. Maybe you feel I need to read scripture more. So maybe you say, okay, this week I'm planning, I'm going to read my Bible three days this week. And if you were doing it just once or twice before, that's the plan. You're making a plan. You're going to pray, ask God to help you to do it, but you're making a plan to get there. Or maybe you think I need to memorize more of God's word. So I'm going to memorize one verse this month. That's the plan I'm making. Start somewhere and grow from there. Make a plan. My goal in saying this is not to burden you with something because let me give you good news. You're not alone in that. That's the point of being a part of a church community. We help one another to serve and to grow together. That's why we value being members of a church so much, because members of a church are able to hold one another accountable. We can hold one another accountable to serving God together and to growing in faith. We care for one another, look out for one another, challenge each other to grow in service and to grow to look more like our Lord. Back in our passage, the very end of the verse says that the king granted to Nehemiah what he asked. And this is the king, Artaxerxes, agreeing to help, just like he did for Ezra before Nehemiah. Back in the book of Ezra, we read that Artaxerxes, the king, made a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest God's wrath be against the king and his sons. So the king responded that way then. Here he grants what Nehemiah asks. We didn't read it, but in verse 9, the king gives Nehemiah an armed escort to the promised land. There's nothing wrong with him getting help from others. The point is that the king gave Nehemiah more than what he asked for, and Nehemiah accepted it because he knew that God was behind it. In all of this, Nehemiah was depending on the good hand of God. He was diligently planning, but he was depending on the good hand of God. And it's no wonder he says it's the good hand of God, because he could see God's gracious hand and actions in his life. Look at the very end of verse 8. The very last phrase says, The king granted me what I asked, for because the good hand of my God was upon me. If this sounds familiar, it's because we've seen this before in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. This is a recurring phrase. It's talking about that God can change things for his people's good. It's a description of God's power. We talked about how God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. He's over all things, yes. But not only that, he has the power to change things in the moment, to show his good hand 
to us. God acted in such a way to give Nehemiah everything he needed to do the Lord's work. Scholar Gary Smith said, Nehemiah knew that the king granted these requests because God was sovereignly guiding the king to do so. So yes, Nehemiah asked this king. Yes, the king gave it to him, but Nehemiah knew it's really God who's behind this. He knew he only had success because God acted on his behalf. Yes, he spent time in prayer. Yes, he talked to the king. He said to the king, this is what I think we need. This is what I think would glorify the Lord. But God was the one who did the real work of changing the king's heart, leading him to help Nehemiah in this way. And since Nehemiah saw that God was behind this, he recognized this as a miraculous action of God on his behalf. He was able to use that story to encourage others. We'll talk about this next week when he gets to Jerusalem and he tells the people what they should do. What he says is, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And I also told them of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, well, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. See, Nehemiah saw God has been the one who's working, who's acting here. And he shared that with them. God has done something miraculous for us. And when the people heard that, they said, wow, that's incredible. Let's be a part of that as well. It inspired them. And that's why this phrase, God's good hand, is such a common refrain in these books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Back in Ezra, we saw it when Ezra went up from Babylonia to return to Israel because he was a scribe of the law of the Moses, of law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And in that case, too, the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. The New Testament affirms this promise for God's people as well. It doesn't quite use the same language, but it uses similar words. In Romans 8, we read, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, to be molded, shaped into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God works in our lives in all things, for the good purpose of not always what we want or what we think is best, but for the good purpose of conforming us to the image of his son, of making us more like Jesus. And friends, becoming more like Jesus should be what church is all about. It should be why we're here and what we're trying to encourage one another to be, to become more like Jesus. I'm sorry, but if you feel this is a place that to come to feel good, to feel better about yourself, to, to feel entertained, that, that's not the role of, of this place. That's, that's not my role. I love and care for you, but my, my role is to see each of us become more like Jesus. That's how God grows his kingdom. That's how he calls people to him here on earth. That's how his reign and rule over earth grows and is established here in this time until he returns. It doesn't mean that that process will always be easy. It doesn't mean that it will happen the way we expect it to at the first, but it's true. 
God works all things together for good, for his purpose. God's good hand is always active in our lives if we have the eyes to see it. It's something we have to discipline ourselves to do, to think that this thing, this challenge that's in front of me, it seems bad, but what could God be using it for? Sometimes we might not know that answer until years and years afterwards. But still, we should discipline ourselves to pray. Pray, God, there's this thing that's in front of me, this rough work situation, this, this really hard relationship I'm dealing with, or this, this struggle, this challenge at, at home, or this thing going on with a loved one, or this health crisis. God, I don't understand why this is happening, but I know what you've said, and God, I trust that you are using it for your purposes. Help me to see your hand in it, to trust you through it. If we know God, we can have that confidence in whatever we're facing. Now, throughout this message, I've been operating under a pretty big assumption that I want to take a step back from. I've been assuming that you can make desperate prayers to God. I've been assuming that you can diligently plan for what God's going to do by depending on his good hand. I'm assuming that you have spoken to God in prayer. I'm assuming that you have a relationship with him. But maybe you don't. Maybe you don't know God. You've never communicated with him, never called out to him in a moment of need. Without him, you are a sinner separated from him. And your only end result will be further separation and judgment from the Lord. So there is an extremely important, brief, desperate prayer that you need. And let me give it to you from Jesus' words rather than my own. Jesus tells a story about two men who come to pray, and one of these prayers is for you. There's one man, a Pharisee, who stands by himself. He prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. These other people who are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, I'm not like them. I'm not like this tax collector, this rebel against your people. No, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You can pray a prayer like that. Tell God about the awesome things you did. He's not going to be very impressed, though. But instead, this tax collector stood far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying this short prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you do not know Jesus, that is the desperate prayer that you need. Just tell him, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And if you recognize that, that your sin and rebellion has separated you from God and you need him and you need Jesus and that he lived for you, he died to pay for your sin, if you recognize that by saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, then God will show you mercy through his son. If you humble yourself and call on him, then you will find that mercy that can lead you to trust in that God who will hear you in your moments of desperate prayer. And so if you don't know Jesus, that's also the diligent plan you need to make. You need to make a diligent plan, diligently plan. I'm going to come to know Jesus. I'm going to do it today. I'm going to make a plan to have a conversation, to talk to someone, to call out to God, to come to know him. If you don't know Jesus, 
diligently, please, I beg you, plan to do so. Whether you're here, online, wherever you are, come to know him. And you can call out to him through a desperate prayer like this one, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God wants to know you. He's, he's worthy of knowing you because of who he is and what he has done.